financial literacy, and the human condition. Welcome to Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, Dr. Francis Rayum. Welcome to Financial Fitness. I'm Jess Tyler, along with the Money Doctor, Dr. Francis Ram. Hello. Hello, Jess. How are you these days? I am good. We had so much more to talk about after we finished last week's show about millennials buying houses because it's just a big, big topic, it seems. Well, I have to say, anybody buying a house is a big topic. This is a huge decision in life, and I think we can all agree it's not as easy as it used to be, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I was standing on a hill yesterday doing a little landscape work and things, and a realtor walked up, introduced himself, and wanted to know, you know, see, there's a house going out for sale up the road. Do you know anybody who wants that house? And it's really, it's become a different game. I mean, it used to be just a short time ago, you listed a house and there was a bidding war over it and people were paying more than the houses were worth. Mm-hmm. And there was enough cash in the marketplace to do it. And that has a lot to do with people who have already created some wealth in real estate, let's call us baby boomers or, you know, even the generation behind us, who have been able to sell a home that had a lot of equity in it, grab that equity and use it as a down payment on your next house mm-hmm. or scale up or, or do, you know, a number of things with it, not to mention what's gone on in the investment world. But that is not the same story for a millennial, right? Millennials have not done that yet, many of them. Now, in fairness, last year we cracked the 50% mark of people who were in the millennial generation, age 27 to 42, who had been able to buy their own home. Now, I take exception to the articles that say own their own home because, as we know, most people have a pretty big mortgage for a long time. Right. So, you know, we were up to 51, I think, percent of people who were millennials owning their own home as of 2022. 51%? 51%? Yeah, 51%. Okay. And that was good. That's the highest we've been so far. I was going to say, that sounds kind of high. Well, I mean, if you compare that to other generations, mm-hmm. baby boomers, for instance, I'm, I don't know the exact number, but I'm sure it's way higher than 50% that own their own homes because they've had a chance to build some wealth in the real estate market when houses were a little more fairly priced and the amount that you paid for your house in relation to the amount of income you earned on an annual basis, for instance, was closer together, right? You might have paid in the 1980s uh, $80,000 for your house, but you earned, say, $30,000 a year, right? Mm-hmm. So your down payment of 20%, if you did that at $16,000, you know, was about half your salary for one year. Now your down payment might be two years' salary. Yeah, right? we were we were talking about that last week about how that just seems overwhelming. Like that seems like probably the biggest hurdle to get into a house is how do you save that much money and still pay your current bills? Well, you know, this is a fast-moving market. And last week, I would have said that's your major problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but today, we have more to add, of course. So that is a problem, a real problem for millennials, as well as other people. But just focusing on millennials for a moment, you know, they're not making as much money in relation to their house payments. Many of them are trapped in apartments at, you know, three grand, 3500 a month, 2500 a month. And they're saying, wait a minute, uh, my parents told me the rule was don't pay money in rent. You're throwing it out the window, buy a house and build equity. So I can afford a $2,500 mortgage or a $3,500 mortgage. I'm making that rent payment every month. Mm -hmm. And they go to the bank and the bank says, no, you can't. I know you're paying your rent, but we're talking about a 30-year stretch in front of us. And we're not going to look at it the same way your landlord did. We're going to say, gee, for instance, you have all these student loans out there. Mm -hmm. And the conversation might sound something like this. Jeff, you have all these student loans out there. And you say, but they're in the forgiveness program. Or I'm not paying those. They're deferred. 
mm-hmm. for their income-based repayment. I can afford those payments. And the bank says, no, we are going to count, because this is our policy, 10% of your loans per year as a payment. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do our numbers to qualify you for a mortgage. And not every bank does it this way, but most are doing it this way these days. We're going to qualify you for a mortgage based on how much income you have, less your debt, and we're going to include 10% of your student loans as a payment. And that's going to change the number that you might get approved for for a loan. Okay, that's a beginning issue, right? Okay, so maybe you get approved for less house. Now, as I said, this market shifts quickly, and anybody who's paid attention to the news or who has a relative in Maui or who has somebody in Deerfield, Mass, knows, all right, we've had fires, we've had floods. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of pressure on insurance companies right now. Yeah, there's now, a lot going on. Yeah, so that's what we call the property and casualty world, and we are in the casualty part of that for insurance. And what do insurance companies not like to do? They don't like money. To, yeah, they don't want to lose money, and they don't like to take on risk. I mean, insurance is exactly that. You are paying a premium to shift the risk from yourself mm-hmm. to an insurance company. That's what insurance is. You shift risk. If you're buying a life insurance policy, you're shifting the risk. You want the insurance company to pay if you die rather than you having to pay out your own assets. If you have a homeowner's policy, you're shifting the risk. I'll pay X number of dollars per year in case my house burns down or in case I have a a catastrophic claim. And then the insurance company is supposed to pay. Mm -hmm. When we have, I know these two things don't sound connected, folks, but I I promise Yeah, I was just going to say to you, I wouldn't think, you know, the fires in Maui or, or these big events going on would have anything to do with whether I could get a mortgage or not. No, you would not. But I'm not off on walkabout here. I'm, I'm kind of telling you ahead of the curve because you probably haven't heard this in the news yet, and you may not. They may find solutions. Okay. But here's the thing I see coming in addition to these other problems. What I see coming is a lot of insurance companies having huge claims uh, quickly, multiple claims, mm-hmm. all those houses in Maui, stuff going on in Florida, wildfires in the West, floods in Massachusetts, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going to be bombarded with these claims. Now, insurance companies, big, fat, and happy financial insurance companies, much as they have actuaries who manage this risk, don't really like, I was going to say they don't really plan, but they do, but they don't really like to pay out on these sort of catastrophic multiple claims. Mm-hmm. In order to protect themselves, which is what we want them to do, believe it or not, we want insurance companies to protect themselves because we need them in the game. Right. We pay our premiums. We want them alive and well to pay out our investment dollars and our claim dollars when we want them. So they're pretty wise about this stuff, but it may come home to roost in the housing market. So what they're going to do, my my little crystal ball here, Jeff, you know, mm-hmm. what, they, what they may do, let's say is they may pull back and say, wait, we've got enough risk. We can only tolerate what we've got right now. And some companies may even fold, right? We've seen that happen. I'll pick on Florida for a moment. We've seen it happen in Florida a number of times. You know, people have coverage on their homes. There's a major hurricane. The losses are so big that the companies that insure them fold, and the government is scrambling to figure out how claims are going to get paid on these places and whether they will be reinsurable or not, Mm -hmm. whether these people will be able to get insured again or whatever was backing them up has to come into play. So if you're an insurance company, just think about this for a second from the insurance company standpoint. If you're an insurance company and you've just had to pay out a lot of claims mm-hmm. and you want to pull back on risk, what are you going to do? You're either going to fold, let the cards fall where they may, but if you stay in business, which most of them will do, mm-hmm. then you have to say to yourself, i got to stop taking on risk. And that means I'm maybe not going to let my agents sell insurance right now. 
I'm going to tell my property and casualty agents that work for my company, I'm sorry, but we're not taking any new homeowner's insurance policies right now. Okay, so when you're getting approved for a mortgage, do they work hand-in-hand with the homeowner's insurance and you can't get approved if you don't have the insurance with it? Well, yeah, sort of. Okay. So here's the thing is that homeowner's insurance is designed to pay if your house has a major problem. Right. So, I thought you got that separate from the bank. Like like I have renter's insurance. So for a bank, when you're yeah. getting a mortgage, it, you have to have both in order for the mortgage to be approved? Well, there's a little, a little difference here. Now, sometimes the banks do say that. They say, look, we're not going to close your, most of the time, we're not going to close on this loan until you have insurance on this house. Okay. They're on the hook. You think it's your house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you think it's your problem when you have a claim. But if the claim is large enough, let's say the house burns down mm-hmm. completely, Right. If it's a smaller claim, they're going to your insurance company is going to pay you to repair the house. But you might know someone this has happened to. They have a thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar claim. It's not enough to, if it were a car, we'd say total it. Right. Right. It's right. Not right. Your house. But if you have a mortgage on that, the lender is going to want to make sure those repairs were done. They don't want to see you get thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars in your hand and spend it at the racetrack and say my house was repaired. They have a vested interest in this house. You still owe them money. Right. So So they want to make sure that the house is worth what is still owed just in case it gets foreclosed on or something else happens, right? Yeah. So let's take this case where, you know, your house burns to the ground. Mm -hmm. All right. You own the land, but the land isn't insured. The property on it, the building was insured. Mm -hmm. So there you are standing on your empty lot, you know, wondering how are you going to rebuild? And the lender comes knocking. Hey, where's the insurance money for this? That's why when you have a mortgage and you lose your homeowner's policy, now you ask, do they work hand in hand? Here's when you'll notice they work hand in hand. You have a mortgage and your homeowner's insurance gets canceled, your lender is going to be on the hook right away. They're going to be calling you saying, you got to get homeowner's insurance on this property. Mm-hmm. And in the cases where you don't, the bank will actually pay for your homeowner's policy. This is not a good thing, by the way. You will still owe them. <laughs> okay. And but they will pick up the homeowner's insurance premium to protect their interest in the house to keep coverage on it. They will charge you for it, plus all the fees and the interest and all that sort of stuff you normally get charged for. Mm-hmm. But they will do it to protect their own interest. But if the insurance now, company kind of slows down on offering insurance because of all these big things happening, then the banks are going to approve less mortgages. Is that kind of right? Well, it, yeah. I mean, it's a long story to say, I don't know if this is going to happen, but I try to bring to light things that might be coming down the pike so right. people can pay attention. I mean, if they're trying to buy a home right now and they can get the insurance and the home goes through, you know, this might be a time where you say, yeah, I'm going to lock that in while I can. Because if the insurance companies, and believe me, I never come to the airways with anything that is meant to panic anybody. That's not what I'm saying. Right. But here's something that we're not hearing about yet, and it might be cooking out there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. insurance companies, they can only handle so much risk. So you need to be looking at this as a possibility. Ask your insurance agent, hey, am I going to be able to get homeowner's insurance on this? I'm scheduled to close in a month, you know, and see what they have to say about it. I'm not a property and casualty agent, so I, I will defer back to somebody who's an expert in that area. But it's just a, it's a little something that might be brewing out there. All right. That's a good tip. Let's get your phone number before we get into part two of the show here. Sure. It's 413-773-3333. Or you can visit HugYourMoney.com. We will be back with much more with The Money Doctor, Dr. Francis Ram, coming up on part two of Financial Fitness right here on WHMP. Have you 
heard about Get the Tea? It's an online herbal supplement company with high quality standards. You could not find these in stores. They carry cleansing teas and targeted herbal supplements for all your health needs. Go to getthetea.com today to order yours. Health shouldn't be put off, it should be a priority. And check out their specials page for sale items. That's getthetea.com. Enter code TEA123 to get 10% off your order exclusively for my listeners. Again, getthetea.com, code TEA123. Order today. This is Francis Rayum, the Money Doctor. Now you can become 100% debt-free, budget successfully, and retire well, all under the Hug Your Money umbrella. Hi, I'm Cheryl. Robin. We do like to travel. Francis assured us that we prepared some room for vacation. End of this month, we're actually going to drive down to see my brother in uh, South Carolina. It's been years. It's been many, many years, and the timing's good, and we feel like, again, we have the financial latitude to be able to do that. Spend a few nights in hotels on the way, spend some time with him, and then come back and then visit my uh, homeland, if you will, uh, in central Virginia, (laughs) where I grew up. (laughs) Um, And uh, I look forward to that. And I can do it comfortably. We've already looked at it. Yeah. And it's really wonderful. It's great to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Hug your money. Hug works best when we work together. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Hug your money. So unique, it's patented. Financial literacy and the human condition. Welcome to Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, Dr. Francis Rayum. Welcome back to Financial Fitness. I'm Jess Tyler along with the Money Doctor, Dr. Francis Rayum, and we're talking mortgages. <laughs> yes, we are talking mortgages and home buying and mm-hmm. how much more difficult it is today to get a home. You know, if everything aligns properly, it's difficult. But when you add to the mix things like the rising cost of housing and the inflationary rate, fact that people just aren't getting increases in their salary as much as they used to be, boy, it gets really complicated. I mean, you know, we have people living with their parents longer than they'd like to. Uh, We have people trying to scramble to get out of their student loans in any way that they can qualify. So in many cases, that means that people are working for lower income Mm -hmm. uh, because they want to qualify for student loan forgiveness. And so not that not that those two always correlate, but you may be working for, let's say, a, a nonprofit organization or a public school when perhaps going out into the private sector with your skills might yield a much higher income, but you kind of feel boxed in for a 10-year period to try to get your student loans forgiven. Mm-hmm. That's great for your student loans, but it's bad for your income. And what do banks qualify you based on? Your income and expenses, right? Yeah. A debt-to-income ratio. I also think it's harder to to save or it seems harder to save because we were talking in the first half about how much rents are right now. And I had always heard you're supposed to pay about 25% of your income on rent, not more than that. And a lot of the people that I talk to with the prices right now, probably about half of their income is going to rent. So then how are you saving up 60, 70, $80,000 for a down payment? Well, you're right on all of those points. First of all, you know, I I always detest that box we're supposed to live in, save six months of your income for emergencies and pay no more than this for your rent. They're nice guidelines, but they're not something to live by. Mm -hmm. And you can say all you want, don't pay more than this for rent. But as you've pointed out, that might not be possible. Yeah, it's not realistic a a lot of times. No, and if you look at the market in the big picture, you can see why it's not possible. Mm -hmm. Somebody buying a rental income property in today's market has had to pay a lot more for it, and so their rents are going to be higher. 
The people who own rental income properties who have already paid them off are going to raise their rents to make as much money as they can, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because everybody else is charging that. So now they're actually offering a competitive rent, but it's all going in their pocket. So we see that bell curve of income tip again when we look at millennials, right? Millennials aren't doing that. Baby boomers are doing that mostly. Mm -hmm. Again, painting with a broad brush here. But yeah, so, so it is harder to do this. And then when you add inflation and the cost of living today, it gets harder and harder. And I don't have to go into a history lesson about this, but there was a time not all that long ago, although it may seem so to most of us, when one income paid the mortgage and all the bills and the other person either, you know, stayed at home to raise kids or made an ancillary income or mm-hmm. nothing. They just hung around, right? So, you know, and did supported their spouse. And that's, you know, banks used to qualify a mortgage that way. There was a time when even if you earned two incomes, the banks would only take the higher of the two and qualify the mortgage. You'll see a lot of people will say, I'm on the deed, but I'm not on the mortgage Mm -hmm. because they wanted to own the house equally, but the bank didn't require them on the mortgage. They were only going to use one income to qualify. It didn't take very long with the rising cost of everything for banks to have to start becoming more pliable for the economy to move into a place where the banks needed both incomes to qualify. Mm -hmm. But now most people cannot simply cannot own a home based on one income. Well, especially with with how high prices are right now for a house. Yeah, for sure. But what's next, Jess? I mean, we put the kids to work and we have their incomes because some of that is happening. (laughs) Can we do that? Sounds ridiculous, but it's (laughs) happening. I mean, I have clients who have their adult children back from college living at home and, you know, they're struggling financially and they end up, even though they don't want to ask the kid, they end up saying to their child, you know what, I'm going to teach you by example. You're going to need to pay us some rent, and it's only going to be a few hundred dollars a month. But you know what, they're not just trying to teach the child by example. They're trying to make ends meet for themselves because just groceries, just the cost of groceries, when you have one, two, three kids at home, forget it. It's enormous, right? Yeah, and then, of course, this whole past year, we had those electric rates spiking. So that was a lot, too. One thing we talked about last week off air, you and I, that I wanted to talk to you about was we're talking about these big town payments and how you possibly save for them. But there are other loans available like an FHA or first time homebuyers. Do you always recommend if you can to put a lower down payment or is that not always the smartest thing to do? So that really is case specific. But you bring up an excellent point. Uh, I think last week I kind of beat up on things a little bit saying, you know, so now we have these 3% down or 5% down or 0% down mortgages. Isn't that wonderful? You get gets people into a home, mm-hmm. but it gets to a home with a higher payment, right? Because you're not putting anything down. Right. But, but your question is a, a really good one, Jess, because for one thing, I think FHA loans are great. If you can qualify for an FHA loan, that's great. But there is a limit of how much house they'll let you buy in terms of dollars and you know, same thing with VA loans. If you were a veteran, if you served in the armed forces, you know, look at a VA loan. The rates are usually much better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of wiggle room there. So when I said it's on a case-by-case basis, I think for someone who has plenty of capital, who can afford to make a higher down payment on a house, then you have to start looking at, okay, is this money better working for me in the market? or even in a fixed account somewhere, right, Mm -hmm. or indexed annuity, or is it better as a down payment in my house? And so all of these numbers can change within Hug Your Money. I always talk about this, that everything is decided a little bit differently inside Hug Your Money than it is outside Hug Your Money because of the speed in which we pay off those mortgages. So 
instead of looking at something for 30 years, you might be looking at it for 8 or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that might change the way you decide about your down payment, for instance. So if you have a lot of capital and mortgage rates are high and you're not earning much in the market, you might say, you know what, I'm better off putting this on my mortgage. Or if it means that your mortgage payment is going to be an easy fit for you and you're not going to struggle so much, that might be the case. But in order to see it, take how much money you're putting down and how much that's saving you monthly mm-hmm. and divide divide that, right? And find how many months it will take you to break even. So for instance, if you're putting down $10,000 and you're saving yourself uh, $100 a month, mm-hmm. it's going to take 100 months to break even on that. So you have to figure, is that worth it to you? Is it worth taking 100 months to break even or not? So, So that's one way to look at it. Now, another way to look at it is Let's say you don't have much money to put down. Let's say you finally build up an emergency nest egg of, I don't know, let's call it $20,000. Okay. And you're thinking about putting 16000 down on your house, to use our early example. Mm-hmm. You know, that might be cutting it too close. You need to remember that you're in what I call a period of transition. Yes, you're excited about buying a new house, but what follows that? Let's get some furniture. Right. <laughs> Those oil bills. Gee, we really found a repair that that needs to be done or an improvement that we want to make. And so if you cut your cash reserves too close, that stuff, mark my words, will end up on a credit card somewhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's not what we're looking for. So when I say this is on a case-by-case basis, I, I really mean that. The best favor you can do for yourself and your family when you're thinking about how much money am I going to put down on this house is not to talk to the banker about it. Bankers aren't evil or anything. I'm just saying that their job is just, you know, get this loan through, right? They're they're not a financial advisor. It's not their job. And, you know, your accountant may say, well, you know, you're going to get a tax write-off on this and not on another thing. You need to find a financial planner of some sort. I use that term very loosely, but you need to find some sort of coach, financial coach I will use, uh, to be able to help you balance out what the best decision might be. And it should include conversation like that. It should be not just how much money do you want to put down and what does the math look like. Mm-hmm. It should should be things like, are you cutting yourself too close here? What about these repairs you want to make? Are you going to end up then having to have a second mortgage on the house? And, it, and will it even support that. Can you get a second mortgage if you need it in the future? Well, this ties right into a question that we got um, from Kim from Northampton who said, should I use all my savings to pay off my credit cards before applying for a mortgage or am I better off putting that money as a down payment but still having those higher credit card balances? Okay, well, this is where I am going to send him back to a banker. Okay. Before go making a knee-jerk decision like this, like I want to make sure I can get approved for a mortgage so I'm going to do X, I would advise that you do it backwards. You go to the bank mm-hmm. and you say, hypothetically, okay, hypothetically, because they can't tell you unequivocally at that stage, okay. but hypothetically, if I wanted to be approved for a mortgage and I had these kinds of numbers, this much in credit card debt, here's my income, here's my other stuff, and I have this much in cash, how could I manipulate these numbers, uh, let's say improve these numbers, <laughs> <laughs> how could I improve my chances? Yeah for approval for a loan. And let the banker who does this every day, Mm -hmm. let that loan officer teach you something about what they need in order for you to be approved. They might say, you know what, we could tolerate $10,000 of your credit card debt, but not 20 or something like that. But they might say, this is what I would do if I were in your shoes. Now, 
where you see this play out is when somebody has already applied for a loan and the lender says there's enough equity in the house to do this and we will not approve this loan unless you pay down this much debt, but we'll put it in your mortgage for you, right? That's when you start to see that come home to roost. So I always say this, before you try to get yourself in a perfect position, before you go to the bank so the Uh bank will approve it, instead ask the bank what they want first and then try and try and provide that. Okay, rewind for a minute on that. You said then they might include it in your mortgage for you. What, they could roll your credit card debt into your mortgage? Yeah, again, not my favorite solution for it. <laughs> okay. This is where somebody is, you know, getting close to closing. Now their hopes are up. They're ready to buy this house. And the application goes up, you know, up the line to the high person who's finally going to approve it. And they look at it and they say, gee, our bank would feel better about this if they had less credit card debt. But because, you know, we have some room to move in this mortgage, in other words, the house is worth far more than we're borrowing on it, mm-hmm. uh, just tell them we'll roll it into the mortgage and we'll finish the loan. Oh, okay. And then the people feel like, oh, my credit cards are paid off and I got my mortgage. But you need to pay attention to that because what you're doing is putting your credit card debt on your house. And if it was just credit card debt, if in the future you ran into financial trouble, like, for instance, uh, bankruptcy, the credit card debt would be wiped out. Once you put it in that mortgage, that's not going to happen. Okay. As usual, we're almost out of time, but I want to see if I could squeeze in one more question um, oh. in, re- in regard to mortgages and houses. Lisa from East Hampton says, I just sold my house. What can I do to not get taxed ridiculously on the small profit I made besides investing in something else? She doesn't want to have to do that. She doesn't want to buy another home. Right. Mean? Yeah. She but oh. she doesn't want to get, she doesn't want to get whatever that tax is on it. I mean, I know that this is not a short question that I tried to squeeze in. No, hey, I, I, I'm going to kick her to an accountant for this one because tax laws change all the time and I'm not an accountant. Uh, this quick answer would have been buy another house and, you know, it's her primary residence. But she may actually be eligible for uh, a tax break on that because it's her primary residence, uh, even if she doesn't buy another home, which I, I believe is probably the case. So uh, she should check with her accountant on that. Okay. Any final advice for new home buyers? Hmm. Yes. Final advice for new home buyers. Um, don't buy too much house. Mm-hmm. I, I know you want the biggest, best, most shiniest, greatest house. We all do. But you have to remember, it can end up owning you. Mm. And so if it's feeling like a real stretch, if you're if you're having conversations like, I think we can do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if we do this and we do that. if right. we Cut back in all these other areas. Be, yeah, then it'll be okay. Then I want you to step back and say, look, maybe it's time for plan A and plan B. Maybe we're going to buy less house right now and plan for five years in the future to get out of that house and buy another one. Right. It might not be your forever home. Right. That's right. All right. Let's get your phone number. It's 413-773-3333. Okay. Again, I want to remind people, too, if you send in a question at info at HugYourMoney.com or to Tyler at WHMP.com and we use your question on the show, you could get a free copy of The Money Doctor's book. Get or alive. All right. And also visit HugYourMoney.com. We will be back. We'll do this again next week. (laughs) I hope so. Another edition of Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, Dr. Francis Ram, coming up next week right here on WHMP. See you then.
heard about Get the Tea? It's an online herbal supplement company with high quality standards. You cannot find these in stores. They carry cleansing teas and targeted herbal supplements for all your health needs. Go to getthetea.com today to order yours. Health shouldn't be put off, it should be a priority. And check out their specials page for sale items. That's getthetea.com. Enter code TEA123 to get 10% off your order exclusively for my listeners. Again, getthetea.com, code TEA123. Order today. This is Francis Rayum, the Money Doctor. Now you can become 100% debt-free, budget successfully, and retire well, all under the Hug Your Money umbrella. Uh, it got to me mentally a little bit. I'm supposed to be able to handle finances, and I can, but this is so much better, so much less stressful. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. We used to argue. We would fight about, not fight, we would discuss it, and then I would eventually get up and leave, and he would stay <laughs> home and do more bills. Because he gets so stressed about money. It used to kill me to see how stressed out he would get. I'm Shannon. I'm Kevin. When it comes to finances, we want to be on top of everything. Honestly, it saved lots of arguments. Like, literally, we have zero stress about our finances now. Debt, budget, retirement. Hug works best when we work together. Schedule your free consultation with a Hug Your Money coach today. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Hug Your Money. So unique, it's patented. Financial Literacy and the Human Condition. Welcome to Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, Dr. Francis Rayum. Welcome to Financial Fitness. I'm Jess Tyler along with the Money Doctor, Dr. Francis Rayum. Hello. Well, hello, Jess. How are you today? I am good. We are talking Social Security, though, which doesn't seem like it's going well. It doesn't seem like a sexy topic either, but I'll tell you what, it affects a lot of people. Yeah. Wow. Social Security. So there's been for many years now... Uh, talk about the Social Security being cut in 2033. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about why that would happen, could happen, and probably will happen. And, you know, what could make it a little bit better and what you can do about it, whether you're already taking Social Security or whether you're considering taking Social Security earlier because you want to make sure to get in on it or delaying. It's it's one of the most common questions we get. Should I take my Social Security now or later? Mm -hmm. And What's going to happen if Social Security ends? Well, and the fact that they're even thinking about cutting it, it seems like it's very little to live off of anyway if that's all you have. There's no doubt about that. And some statistics show that the largest portion of people's retirement income today Mm -hmm. is Social Security. Uh, And the average monthly check is about $1,400. So that will tell you something. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to be able to live on that for sure. No. And so... If somebody's saying, and by the way, it's going to run out in 2033, that strikes fear into the hearts of anybody who is counting on it or who is already receiving it. Mm -hmm. Can we start with just a small rant? Yeah. Okay. On your part or mine? (laughs) On on my part. I just want to say, and I'm just curious to get your thoughts on it as a financial expert, but it just irks me so much when we talk about ending Social Security or like this free money we're getting. We pay into Social Security with every paycheck for all of our working life. So I don't love the idea that it's kind of positioned as a gift we're getting. Yeah, I would agree with you and and take the other side as well and say, just because you say we paid in all this time, if you actually look at what you pay in versus what people are getting paid out, you'll see it's not quite (laughs) quite, uh, in line with what you've paid in for some other kind of an investment. Well, depending on how long you live, right? Well, yes, and your rant is, is heard and well taken because I think most of us feel this way. So 
this is why it's worth, you know, talking a bit about this and how Social Security has worked in the past, how it might work in the future, uh, and this idea about what Social Security is. Okay. So Social Security was never intended to be a retirement check, quite honestly. It was intended to be there for people who didn't quite have enough retirement from their company pensions or whatever. Which have mainly gone away. Yeah. So the government comes out and says you can have a 401k and your company can match that and it's supposed to augment your pension because we knew even way back when, hey, you know, we know people, we know what year people are being born. We know what their average life expectancy is. The writing is on the wall that at some point we're going to have a lot more people collecting Social Security and not as many working, Mm -hmm. right? This is People are having less babies, smaller families. That's not hard to see coming. That's a train coming down the track, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, at some point they said, well, we're going to have to augment this. So let's start this new savings account where you can put tax-deferred money away called a 401k. So that sounded great. People with pensions jumped on the bandwagon with a 401k. Companies matched some of it. Mm-hmm. Then a little while later, companies didn't match so much. Then the pension started to disappear. I hardly meet anybody today who's got a good pension. So if you've got one good for you, yeah. you know. And somehow this 401k became a replacement for the pensions. And why wouldn't it? And let Companies- me just say, though, that a lot of companies stopped matching at all, especially during COVID, and it never came back. That's absolutely right. I recently heard of one company matching $2 for every dollar the employee put in, and it was like Christmas for me. I was like, yay! (laughs) Go put money in there. You're getting 200% no matter what happens. Yeah, yeah. So that was, but it's very rare. And so you're right. Companies don't match at all now. But from a company standpoint, politically, you had to see this coming, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to let companies stop having pensions and decide if they want to match or not in a 401k. Well, they saved a boatload of money in pensions. Right. Onus for saving for retirement was shifted onto people, uh, employees, to contribute to their 401k if they could afford to. Mm-hmm. And we many shows talking about how people over-contribute sometimes while they're taking on a lot of debt because they don't have enough money in the end of their paycheck. So, yikes, this is clearly a problem. Social Security has been a problem for a long time. Now, in decades past, it worked fine, mm-hmm. right? There were enough people working and putting money into the system to pay the people who were taking money out of the system. So, for instance, in 1935, we had 150 workers for every retiree. Do you know what we have today? I'm going to say less than half. Three. What? Three. Wow. <laughs> we now have three workers for every retiree, according to these statistics, right? So what they're saying is... Let's go back to this in a minute. I'm going to go back to your rant. The money that you're taking out of Social Security mm-hmm. is not your money. You're putting money in. You know, it's not like a retirement fund where you they see how much money you put in and they pay that money out. Right. The money out is actually the money that was paid in by the previous generation. Mm-hmm. The money that you're taking out of Social Security, if you're drawing your payments now, is what is being paid by current workers, right? Mm-hmm. The now, what, what has made it work in thin times is this trust fund. So the Social Security Administration has a trust fund that has about uh, $3 trillion in it right now, I believe. Mm-hmm. So now if we only have three workers for every retiree, we have a problem, big problem. It's shifted radically. And mm-hmm. what made this worse than anything is COVID-19. 
We had COVID-19 throwing tens of millions of workers out of work. Right. Right? Not paying money in, being out of work, trying to get back into the system. Some of them decided to take their retirement if they were close enough to do it. Uh, You know, nobody expected that. Politically, this is a nightmare. And add to that an election year. Right. And, yo, man, this thing's on fire. Right? Well, I know the argument's been going on for a long time, but it just seems to me like the people that, you know, now that it's three to one versus what it was before, that's kind of not the current generation's fault. So you still have to pay in, but this could be going away by 2033. It just doesn't seem fair. It seems almost like the security trust fund needs to kick in more when there's less people. And then maybe if, you know, future generations, there's more then they'd have to kick in less. Does that make sense? Well, it makes sense mathematically, but I'm sure people would object to that. <laughs> uh, you know, so I don't have a big family, but somebody else did that was in the generation before me, and I have to fund their retirement, so I have to contribute more, right, and, and the inverse. So, But you're right. Something has to be done to level the playing field here. Mm-hmm. And I think it is, as I've said many times, politically unlikely, particularly in an election year. And I would say to people, be careful about this one. If somebody is running, and I, I haven't, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not picking anybody in particular. I don't have anybody in mind. But if somebody is running and saying, "But well, we're going to fix the Social Security situation, and they're not telling you how, mm-hmm. beware. Mm-hmm. Because it seems that there are only a couple of things that they could do. And we have talked about this, and I think we did one whole show about this. But they could, in some way, uh, increase taxes. Nobody loves to do it. But the money's got to come from somewhere, mm-hmm. or they could decrease benefits. Now, the decreasing benefits part is the one we've talked about in the past, that, wait a minute, wait a minute, you, you've got to fix Social Security, so you're going to cut all the social kinds of benefits. I'm not a socialist, right? But, but this is a, a sort of a model where we are funding, you know, how people get their food when they're, they have food uh, challenges, you know, mm-hmm. food and how people handle daycare when they can't afford it, how, you know, what happens when people are out of work. That's all stuff that the government system is funding on an ongoing basis that may have to change if we don't want our retirees homeless and hungry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that sounds really harsh, but you know what? 2033 is around the corner. Believe me, it it goes fast, right? I know. I remember thinking when it got to be 2000, it was going to be like, woo, and now it's 2023. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, here's the scary part. We'll talk about things you can do to make it better, maybe. But here's the scary part. They're mm-hmm. talking about by 2020, by 2033, excuse me, this trust fund would be depleted. Now, the trust fund is what they're dipping into to make the numbers work when they don't. And that's so, the, the trust fund is what you were talking about that had $3 trillion in it about. That's right. And anybody who listens to the news knows $3 trillion isn't all that much money. Okay? So, three, so $3 trillion in 10 years would be gone is what you're saying. That's what they're saying, yeah. Okay. Now, we have to remember what COVID-19 did to us as well financially because they dipped into that all that time to make this work. Mm-hmm. So we're going to shorten this timeline a little bit that we thought we might have to recover. So, yeah, I mean, they're dipping into the trust fund because the benefits each year that it's paying out are more than it's collecting in payroll taxes. Mm-hmm. So you got to cover that shortfall somehow. That's where the trust comes in. Now, when that trust is depleted, which is what the SSA trustees are now saying and have been for a couple of years, when that trust is depleted, the only money Social Security will be able to pay out 
to retirees is the money it collects from workers, mm-hmm. right? There won't be any more in the trust fund that went in there by everybody paying in all these years while we had, you know, 150 workers per, you know, one retiree. So now it's upside down. That means there's only enough money at that point. Remember I said we have three workers for every retiree? Mm-hmm. That means if we can only draw enough money from workers to pay retirees, that's only enough to cover 76% of the retirees' benefits. And that's possibly with them being cut as well. No, I think if they cut benefits now, so that's another part of the story. If they make changes now, the Mm -hmm. sooner they make them, the better it will be for everybody. It will be an annoyance. We will complain about it. Nobody wants higher taxes. Nobody wants any cuts of benefits. But the simple math says you got too much month at the end of the money here, and something has got to change. Well, the money's going to come out of somewhere. I mean, either you're going to pay a little, you know, some more taxes or whatever the solution is, or as you said earlier, there's going to be a whole other problem with retirees who end up being homeless or the other problems you were talking about because they don't have families to take them in. So you're either paying more for this now, or you're going to end up paying more towards those programs that take care of homeless and, and other issues. For sure. And you would pay less for it now than you will if you're the person who gets their benefits cut by you know, 24%. So, All right. There's a lot more to talk about in this topic. So let's get your phone number first. Absolutely. It's 413-773-3333. And you can go to hugyourmoney.com as well. We'll be right back with part two of financial fitness with the money doctor, Dr. Francis Ram right here on WHMP. Have you heard about Get the Tea? It's an online herbal supplement company with high quality standards. You cannot find these in stores. They carry cleansing teas and targeted herbal supplements for all your health needs. Go to getthetea.com today to order yours. Health shouldn't be put off. It should be a priority. And check out their specials page for sale items. That's getthetea.com. Enter code TEA123 to get 10% off your order exclusively for my listeners. Again, getthetea.com, code TEA123. Order today. Welcome back to Financial Fitness. I'm Jess Tyler, along with the money doctor, Dr. Francis Rayam, and we're talking Social Security. You know, I have to say we're both doing pretty well at keeping our cool on this, but <laughs> it's a hot topic. And any of us who, well, everybody, I mean, any of us who expect to take Social Security or who know somebody who would be harmed by Social Security being cut is frustrated. And I don't think it takes much to see that we're pointing the finger at politicians because those are the people making this decision. And while I'm on this blame game, let me tell you, if you're unhappy about this, you need to contact your elected representative mm-hmm. and or the White House. I mean, you just need to actually, instead of complaining and letting it fall on deaf ears, sit down, write a letter, put it in the mail, and get it out there. Make a phone call to their office and say, I'm unhappy about this. Because people tend to live in a bubble, right? And if they're not hearing from you, they just figure out it's a mathematical problem and I'll vote one way or another and that's how my constituents want me to vote and mm-hmm. I'm fine with that. But I think people really need to understand how drastic this could be. And I think also the idea that it's politically unlikely to be quite what we're saying that, you know, come 2033, there's a line in the sand and bingo, your benefits are cut by 24% and you're stuck dealing with it, right? I mean, I think everybody knows something has to be done about it before that mm-hmm. time. It's not a very long time to correct this problem. Yeah, it's really, it's coming up really quickly. The $3 trillion that we're talking about, that's about that amount in a trust now, do we add to that every year? By we, I mean the government. Well, we used to. And we Um, stopped. You have to remember the government is off. (laughs) 
this is the this is the crux of the matter. I love how people talk about the government, myself included, as though it were some separate company or entity. The government is us. The government doesn't have its own money except for what they print, which that's a whole different story. But you know, that's our money. Right. That we they decide where it's going to go. And yeah, how, I was going to say they appropriate it in different places. So yeah. there is other money, whether it be from taxes or wherever, besides our Social Security, that they could have been growing this every year, isn't there? Well, I think they've been trying to do this. Now, you know, we're assuming that all politicians would look at this and agree on something finally. Mm-hmm. Do I sound negative about politicians? I'm sorry. No, I mean, I, it's hard not to. And I know that people run on, you know, campaign on Social Security, and but it just doesn't seem like anything has really been done. And we're going to get to 2033 and be like, uh, what now? Well, I have to say, I do have some sympathy for politicians individually that many people do run for office because they want to make changes like this and they believe they can do it. They get into D.C. and they have this sort of, like, you can almost hear the album with a needle across it, like, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of red tape, for sure. I mean, so much manipulation, lobbyists, whatever. Mm -hmm. So it, it is really difficult, I think, for people to actually affect change particularly when you don't have one or the other party uh, controlling both the presidency and the Congress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that gets more difficult. That's kind of, you know, they bat the ball back and forth and we sit in the middle like people in a tennis match. So I think, you know, are they appropriating it from other places and do they try to do this? Yeah, I think this has been on the top of the topic list for many years. Mm-hmm. But I think it's often, you know, where are you going to take this money from? Well, we're going to Okay, let me just make something up for a minute. We're going to let, uh, we're going to tell insurance companies they have to, you know, collect more in premiums and they're going to funnel this money in premiums off to this fund or something, right? Mm-hmm. No, no matter what you say, somebody is going to be upset by it. You're not going to keep all the people happy all the time. Right. Even right now, and as it has been, with us saying, look, 2033 is the end of the trust fund. Here's the math, folks. This is how many people are on the planet. This is how many people are retired. This is how many people are working. You know, find the missing the missing value here. Okay, it's, you're going to be out of money here in 2033. And even with that, because everybody seems to have this, well, it's the truth. If you don't get reelected, you can't do anything, right? You, yeah. you, you don't have a vote. So they do what they need to do to get elected, maybe. Now, I'm not a political expert, and anybody listening to me would know that. But I'm a citizen. Right. And I'm somebody who helps people with their money, and I'm tired of of seeing this coming closer and closer and closer without some resolution. If we cut these benefits in 2033, Jeff, by 24%, that's about $17,000 a year Mm. for the average annual payout for a Social Security check. I mean... I don't care if you're making a lot of money. $17,000 a year is a pretty big cut. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. And, you know, that's... That is going to equate to people truly being homeless, not being able to pay for their health care. Now, what does any country not want? You don't want homeless people who are ill, who end up, you know, we end up having a plague again and wiping out our society, right? Mm-hmm. You want people in homes with good health care, enough money to get decent food and, you know, live a normal lifestyle. That's what America was supposed to be, right? That's what it's been built on. Right. But again, we've abused the system, I'm sorry to say. Uh, we It was never designed to be a retirement account, and it's been used as one. And now, and we've all done it to ourselves. I mean, not just the individual people, right? Society has pushed us into this. We've, You and I have talked about this many times by 
rising cost of things, buying a house, buying a car, all of this requires so much money. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you've got to get your money from somewhere in retirement. And Social Security seems to be one of those places uh, for a lot of people. And because pensions were cut and maybe they didn't have enough money to put into a 401k, many, many, many Americans are living almost entirely on Social Security, if not only on Social Security. Well, I'm curious. I'd love to get your opinion on a, on a couple of things. What are your thoughts on Social Security? Do you think that we should have it or shouldn't have it? Or do you think that there's better places for our money? Because Social Security out of your check isn't an option. You have to you have to put it in. So you don't really have that. But do you think it's good, bad? What are your thoughts on it? Well, I think it was developed for a reason. And I think if we could come anywhere close to using it for those reasons, it would be great. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it matters what my opinion is. The, the horse has left the corral. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we are on Social Security for generations now, and we will be if we can fix this for years to come. The question would be, how can we fix it mm-hmm. so it continues to work properly while families are lessening in size and less people are working and more people are retiring? We knew this baby boomer thing was going to get us from the time Statistics came out in the government and said, look, everybody's having a lot of babies. We're going to have a lot of people retiring. Yeah. And nobody did much about it. Nobody really thought much about it. Do I think it's a good thing? You know, I think it's a necessary evil for most people these days. And I think the idea that you could possibly just say, well, we don't have enough money, so you're going to have to live on 24% less is absurd. We we cannot do it as America. So. One thing I did want to touch base on before we end this, because I, I started the show saying, you know, what if you're thinking about taking it early or you're already taking it, what what should you do? Mm-hmm. And what else can you do to improve this situation for yourself? And the first thing is, if you're already taking your Social Security, even let's say they that you had to take it before age 70 even, you just, you know, for whatever reason decided to take it, just stay the course. Mm-hmm. You know what? I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it. It is what it is. Okay? Right. You're already taking Social Security. You can't change it anyway. Just take the Social Security and maybe squirrel away as much money as you can in preparation for this mm-hmm. because at some point your your payments may go down. Now, maybe it won't be by 24%, but I think the chances that they can cut enough money to keep everybody's Social Security checks at the same level and not strip other programs that are necessary completely down to nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a quite a game here to play, quite a balancing act. So prepare yourself if you can, you know, lessen your expenses, squirrel away that money if you can. Start to think about it. If you've been thinking about downsizing home or something, maybe you want to add this into your mix and say, you know, we weren't really thinking about the idea that our Social Security checks might be cut or that our taxes might increase mm-hmm. or anything like that. And that's all going to affect your bottom line. So no matter how this is resolved, one way or another, it's going to cost us. And it has to. It can't not cost us somewhere. In taxes, in programs, in benefits, something's going to happen. So do the best you can to be conservative and, and protect yourself from that. Now, one thing I did want to say is sometimes I hear financial advisors now saying, oh, you know what, you should take your Social Security now at 62 because it's going to end in 2033 and be cut down by 24%, you might as well take advantage of these larger payments now. Mm-hmm. That might sound reasonable, and in certain, certain circumstances it is. For instance, somebody who doesn't have a long lifespan, or there might be reasons that you need to take it at 62. 
But remember that even if you wait until 70, if you're close to taking it now, if you're making this decision within this time frame, you know, if you took it, if let's say you took the $17,000 we're talking about as, as an average, right? Mm-hmm. If you took $17,000 at age 62, that's the average payout. If you waited till age 70, you'd receive 30000 Now, I know everybody will say, yeah, but I'll receive it for less. So you have to have a, a balancing factor here. And the factor I'm going to use is, let's suppose that you live into your 80s or beyond. Mm-hmm. You live in your 80s or beyond, you're much better off delaying those benefits. Because your payment is going to be bigger. Yeah, and you're, and you're not ever going to be able to go up from your 17000 that you took at age 62. So yes, you get the money earlier, but you sacrifice over the eight-year period, you know, that difference of $14,000 a year. Right, or 30, right. $13,000 a year. Excuse my rough math. $13,000 a year. So, you know, when we, when we do these shows, Jeff, I don't try to instill panic in, in the hearts of people. I'm trying to tell you, I'm just trying to make people aware of something that might be going on. Bring it to the forefront. Everybody knows this is a problem. This isn't new. Right. Right. He knows it's out there. But take it seriously. Write a letter, pick up the phone, save your money, think about that extra job if you want an extra job now for a while to scroll, scroll away some cash. Prepare yourself because something by 2033 has to happen. And my guess would be in an election year, something's going to happen sooner rather than later regarding mm-hmm. how this works. You know, do, do we have an increase in taxes, for instance, which is probably the easiest way for them to do this, right? Nobody will like it. Right. It'll happen or the money will get filtered probably to the wrong place again. Who knows? But but somebody politically will say, well, let's just increase taxes. Well, what about you know? raising the the age limit because people are living so much longer? You know, that's another point that we've talked about in the past. And as always, you bring up great questions. It's another thing they could do. I mean, they've already done it. It used to be that you got full retirement at age 65 from Social Security. They mm-hmm. called it your full retirement age. Yeah. It's now six and a half. Now, this could continue. By the time the next generation can get their Social Security, maybe they have to be 72. Right. You know, and the argument will be, well, people are living longer, so that's okay. Mm-hmm. But just because they're living longer doesn't mean you want to work longer. And I go back to my original point was Social Security is not your retirement plan. Right. Do you think, mm-hmm. then, that, um, do you think then that 401k should be required instead of an option? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I can only point to the Massachusetts teacher's plan okay? because that is a requirement. So if you're a teacher in Massachusetts, they take 11% of the paycheck, whether you want it or not. Mm-hmm. And people complain about it initially. And they say, oh, 11% is killing me, you know. Yeah. But it forces you to live on what's left of your paycheck. And at retirement, you know, they get a decent retirement out of that. Mm-hmm. So. Should it be mandatory? I don't know. We're back to socialism, right? <laughs> to be able to do what you want for retirement, yes. But there's an old adage that says, and I've used this before, I'm sure, but the right to swing your fist stops at the next person's nose. And yeah. yes, you should be able to make your own decisions. But when you've made those and now you're homeless and hungry and somebody else is having to pick up a tab for that, mm-hmm. is it fair? And believe me, I'm not picking on homeless and hungry people. My gosh, I mean... Talk about major problems to have in your life. But I am pointing it out because, you know, we like to think of retirees, yeah, they're on a fixed income. They don't go out to eat much. Yeah? How about 24% less than their paycheck means they can't pay their mortgage? They can't pay their health care. They can't get, that's a problem. Wow. Well, this is a big topic, and I think you're right. It's going to be coming up a lot in the next few months um, for sure. And beyond, I hope. But, you know, I would love to hear 
I would love to hear in the news one day that letters have, you know, been flying into Washington and flying into the representatives' offices saying, you have to fix this and, and, and maybe I'm willing to do something. I'm willing to pay a little more in taxes or I'm willing to, you know, take a little less in my paycheck to help the system survive in some way. You know, anybody who's, I mean, there's a lot of smart people out there. Yeah. Anybody suggestion of what to do, please tell your local representative. It's interesting because it's obviously an urgent issue, but I think we all think, you know, we're never going to be old. So we're like, okay, we can put that off because that's years away, but it, it gets here quicker than you think. It really does. And I'll tell you, even if you're not planning on taking Social Security, you should pay attention to this because it's going to affect your lifestyle. When other people can't shop at your business or can't rent your house or Mm -hmm. driving down the street and you have to encounter, you know, terrible things you'd never like to see seniors having to struggle with. I mean, it it affects us all. It's it's kind of like education when people say, well, I don't have children. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have children. Why should I pay taxes for schools? Well, you know what, folks? (laughs) We're in a large biosphere here called America. (laughs) It affects us all. So, All right. Well, let's get your phone number. (laughs) Thanks. It's 413-773-3333. Or as always, you can go to HugYourMoney.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Have you heard about Get the Tea? It's an online herbal supplement company with high-quality standards. You cannot find these in stores. They carry cleansing teas and targeted herbal supplements for all your health needs. Go to GetTheTea.com today to order yours. Health shouldn't be put off. It should be a priority. And check out their specials page for sale items. That's GetTheTea.com. Enter code TEA123 to get 10% off your order exclusively for my listeners. Again, GetTheTea.com, code TEA123. Order today. Have you heard about Get The Tea? It's an online herbal supplement company with high quality standards. You cannot find these in stores. They carry cleansing teas and targeted herbal supplements for all your health needs. Go to GetTheTea.com today to order yours. Health shouldn't be put off. It should be a priority. And check out their specials page for sale items. That's GetTheTea.com. Enter code TEA123 to get 10% off your order exclusively for my listeners. Again, GetTheTea.com, code TEA123. Order today. This is Francis Rayum, the money doctor. Now you can become 100% debt-free, budget successfully, and retire well, all under the Hug Your Money umbrella. She had two IRAs that were worth approximately $25,000, and she closed them out to pay off credit cards. I was desperate. And I really believe that's when she said, i got to do something, because that was going to be part of our retirement. And the next thing was going to be is, am I going to turn in mine? I never, ever considered cashing his in. No, but I did. And I thought, okay, you're obviously never going to do this on your own, Jill. It's not working. Once she started paying the credit cards off and seeing results, then she was happy with your money. I felt uh, relief. Debt, budget, retirement. Hug works best when we work together. Schedule your free consultation with a Hug Your Money coach today. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Hug Your Money. So unique, it's patented.